and the stone hurls at that statue representing the kingdoms of this world and it crushes it to powder and the wind blows the powder away. That stone is the Messiah who will destroy the kingdoms of man and establish his own kingdom. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue in Romans 9 and 10 in Tom Pennington's series titled Human Responsibility. Though it might come as a surprise to some, many individuals may think themselves religious, but in fact, have only a superficial connection to the Bible, church, and Christianity. Could be that they're trusting in their own good works to try to earn a right standing with God. Well, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul explains that Jesus Christ is a stumbling block for everyone seeking salvation by their own effort and works. How can you know if that's you, friend? Are you entrusting yourself to the complete work of Jesus and in Him alone for your salvation? Consider that matter carefully as Tom begins right now on The Word Unleashed. Scripture presents countless word pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think, even as I say that, of maybe your favorite, but there are word pictures like the Alpha and the Omega, the bread of life, the water of life, the light of the world, the rock, the true vine from which we gain the strength and health and life we need, the way, the truth, and the life, and on and on it goes. But this morning, we come to what I think is one of the most beautiful, most profound, most powerful word pictures of who Jesus Christ is to us that it's found anywhere in Scripture. Just to remind you of the context, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Romans, here in Romans 9, Paul is considering the question of why so few Jewish people have believed in their Messiah. This was important because Someone could say, listen, Paul, if, if the gospel you preach, that the Messiah has come, that he has, he has brought an end to sin by the sacrifice of himself is true, then why have so few Jewish people believed? Maybe your message is wrong. Or maybe God is not keeping his promises to his Old Testament people. This was a big issue because, frankly, if God wasn't faithful to them, how do we know he'll be faithful to us? How do we know Romans 8 is true for us? if God changed his mind about the Jewish people. And so this is important. Now, Paul's first answer to this question of why so few Jewish people have believed is the answer of divine election. We studied it at length. It begins in chapter 9, verse 6, and runs down to verse 29. We learned here that from the very beginning, God never intended to save every physical descendant of Abraham. That was never his plan. God chose Abraham and not his contemporaries. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And God chose Jacob and not Esau. And so it goes throughout human history. But election is not the only answer to this question. Paul's second answer, as we're discovering here, is human responsibility. 
When people don't believe in Jesus and his gospel, they are personally responsible for that unbelief. Now, we're looking then at the primary factors that that contribute to the Jewish responsibility for not believing the gospel. That's the context, but as I told you, we're kind of stepping back from that and reminding ourselves this is true not merely of the Jewish people who haven't believed, but of Gentiles who hear the gospel and don't believe either. So, with that in mind, we're looking at those primary factors. We're studying just the first factor, and it's this. It it comes from a failure to understand the clear purpose of God's law. This is what he explains at the end of chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. In this brief paragraph, Paul is struck by the fact that two very unlikely outcomes have actually happened. Outcome number one, the Gentiles who were not pursuing being right with God have attained it. That's verse 30. And the Jews who made it their life's ambition to pursue righteousness completely failed to arrive at that destination, verse 31. And that is true for two reasons, verses 32 and 33. So let me just remind you of what we've seen so far as he unpacks this failure to understand the clear purpose of God's law, he first of all makes the point that many Gentiles have gained righteousness, a right standing before God, apart from keeping God's law. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. This happened to many of us. Maybe you were living your life, maybe you, you were living out your fallenness, you were pursuing sin, you had no, no interest in God, no interest in pursuing God, you were just enjoying life as fallen people do, and then you heard the gospel. You heard the gospel, and, the, and God Himself, through the work of His Spirit and His Word, called you to Himself, and you believed, and suddenly you who weren't seeking a right standing before God, boom, in a moment you have it. That's what he says. Secondly, he makes the point that no Jews have gained righteousness through the law. Not one, except of course our Lord Jesus Christ, has ever demonstrated perfect obedience to the law and in so doing gained a right standing before God by his obedience. That's just a fact, and he says that in verse 31. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. I told you last time that that the picture of that word arrive is, is someone who's running a race and who is desperately straining every muscle, making every conceivable effort to reach the finish line, but never arriving. The Jews never arrived at the goal of a right standing before God based on their obedience to God's law. That is simply a fact. That's what Paul says. But why is that true? Well, in verses 32 and 33, he gives us two reasons. We looked last time at the first reason. The first reason they didn't arrive at a right standing before God was because they stumbled over the means. They misunderstood the means by which we are made right with God. Look at verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Now, Paul's point 
here is that the Jewish people as a group, obviously not all Jewish people, there are some of you here who, who are Jewish in your background and you believed in the Messiah, you've come to embrace the gospel, but as a group, he says, and Paul can say this as a, as a Jewish person, he says they missed the whole point of the Old Testament scripture. The point of the law wasn't to earn our way into God's favor. Rather, it was to show us our sin and our utter lack of righteousness and then to drive us to the Messiah as our only hope of real righteousness. It was to say, here's the standard. You're never going to meet it. You better look somewhere else. And then we turn and we see one who kept it for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who died for our breaking of it. That was the point. But they missed it entirely. They didn't understand what Paul teaches us in Galatians 3 about the law. They thought that to gain a right standing before God, all they needed to do was just try harder to keep God's law. And they could earn their way into heaven. They missed the clear biblical fact that you can only be justified by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. You remember back in in Romans 4, Paul gave us Old Testament examples. He said, look at Abraham, look at David. This is how they were made right with God. So it was just a, a total misunderstanding. They stumbled over the means by which we are made right with God. They thought it was their works rather than the work of the Messiah. Now today, we come to a second reason that they never arrived at the goal, and it's a second reason that many today who have some connection to the God of the Bible never truly experience salvation. The second reason is they stumbled over the Messiah. They stumbled over the Messiah. We could sort of summarize the two reasons that that people don't arrive at the destination of righteousness, that is a right standing before God, we could could summarize it this way. In many cases, they take the wrong route. They're on the wrong road. They're pursuing a right standing based on their own works rather than faith in Christ's finished work. And the second reason, the one we're looking at today, is they stumble over the cornerstone. Now, in this text we're going to look at, there's a stone. And this stone, in verses 32 and 33, is a person. He is the Messiah. This is clear. You'll notice verse 33. It says, believe in Him. We're talking that this stone is a person. And if you go over to chapter 10, verse 11, Paul quotes the same passage again. The Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And if you look at the verses right before that, he's talking about Jesus. So the stone that we're talking about in these verses is no one else but the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's look at what Paul says about Jesus as the stone here in these verses just for a few minutes together. Let's read it together. Look at the middle of verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now this idea of Christ as a stone is one of the most powerful and profound pictures in Scripture, and it appears in both Testaments. 
I, I won't show you every passage, but let me give you a little list of them. First of all, in the Old Testament, sort of uh, one of the leading passages is Psalm 118, verse 22. There, we read, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That passage is applied, as we'll see in a moment, in the New Testament to Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then in Isaiah chapter 8, in Isaiah chapter 28, we see this concept of a stone. I'm going to skip those for now because we're going to come back to them in just a moment. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, and 44 and 45, you remember there's that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of the image of all the empires of the world. And then he sees cut out of a mountain without hands this massive stone. And the stone hurls at that statue representing the kingdoms of this world, and it crushes it to powder, and the wind blows the powder away. That stone is the Messiah who will destroy the kingdoms of man and establish his own kingdom. The stone. You come to the New Testament and you see the same idea. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 21, verses 42 to 44, he quotes Psalm 118.22 and claims it for himself. He says, that stone which the builders rejected that God has made the cornerstone, that's me. That's me. So it's not surprising then when you come to the preaching of the apostles in the early chapters of Acts, you see this same theme. Go to Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Peter, verse 8, this is Acts 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, don't miss that. He's talking to the leaders of the nation. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' second name. That's, remember, it's uh, the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Messiah. What he's saying here to the leaders of the nation is Jesus Messiah, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. Verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Can you imagine the audacity of the, of the apostle Peter standing before the leaders of the nation and saying, Jesus is the stone, and you're the builders who rejected him, but God has made him the cornerstone. He goes on, to say in verse 12, because he's the, the cornerstone, because God's made him that, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not in Jesus Christ, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the fact that God has made Christ the cornerstone means this, there is no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can be made right with God. He is the only way you can be made right with God. So then when you come to the Apostle Paul's letters through the rest of the New Testament, the same theme occurs. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus, Messiah. 
Ephesians 2.20, Messiah Jesus Himself is the chief cornerstone. When you come to Peter's first letter, in fact, turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2. In this text, Peter borrows from three Old Testament passages about Jesus as the stone and pulls them together. He quotes from Psalm 118. He quotes from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. But notice what he says, 1 Peter 2 verse 4. We have, those of us who have believed, have come to Jesus as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And you also, as living stones, are built up together as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. In other words, he's saying believers are like a temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the rest of us are like new other stones in that great temple made to worship God. And then he says, verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. But, I'm sorry, go back to verse 6. I don't want to skip verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. That is, they're disobedient to the gospel. And to this doom they were also appointed. That is, to the doom that comes to those who refuse to believe and who disobey the Word. That's what's been appointed. Now, with all that in mind, go back to Romans chapter 9. Back in Romans 9, Paul is making one basic point, and that is that rather than put their faith in the stone and build their lives on it, Israel as a whole stumbled over the stone. Notice verse 32, they stumbled. The Greek word literally means to make contact with something in a bruising or violent manner to beat against something or to stumble over something. This isn't like a little toe stub. This is a violent stumble that practically takes your life. Used figuratively, it means to take offense at, to feel repugnance for, or to reject. You say, what's the relationship between stumbling and being offended? Look, we all understand this. Maybe you've had an occasion, as I have, to be walking in a, in a public, maybe even a, a special sort of dignified occasion, and you're walking along trying to put on your best you know, set of dignity and, and class, and, and suddenly you stumble. And you stumble pretty significantly. You trip over something, and you, you, know, you look like you're about to fall to the ground, and all sense of dignity is gone. What is the first thing we all do? What do you do when that happens? You look back. You look back at what tripped you. And you do so with this terribly angry, offensive look. Like, how dare you be so audacious as to trip me? It's your fault. You see how stumbling and taking offense go together. That's the idea here. When something trips us, we are offended by it. 
Verse 32 says, they stumbled over, they tripped over, and were offended by the stumbling stone. Now, Paul is borrowing that image from the Old Testament. Notice verse 33, just as it is written. And then what follows are two Old Testament texts. Paul takes two passages from Isaiah and combines them into this verse. He combines Isaiah 8, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, verse 16. The first and last parts of verse 23 come from Isaiah 28. The middle part of verse 33 comes from Isaiah 8. So he kind of sandwiches it all together. Let's go back and look at these texts in their context. Go back to Isaiah, and let's start at chapter 28. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, let me give you the context of this verse. Here, it's addressed to the false hope of the southern kingdom, Judah, the false hope that they had placed in Egypt. They were being faced with a military threat from the Assyrians. And rather than putting their trust in God, they ran to Egypt, as they so often did, and said, let's make an alliance with Egypt, and they'll protect us from the Assyrians. And that was a false hope. And so here, in this verse, God tells them, listen, there is a much more secure foundation for your hope than Egypt. It's the Messiah who's coming. Now notice what he says in verse 16. I am laying... God himself is putting this stone into place in a particular location in Zion. That is, not in a a physical place, but among the people of God. A stone. And then he says this. Notice how he describes the stone. It is a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation. Now, A tested stone in Hebrew is literally a stone of testing. Now that's important because when you understand that, it can mean two different things. A stone of testing may mean that the cornerstone itself has been tested and approved to function as a cornerstone. That's how the NAS translators take it. More likely, it's the second idea. A stone of testing means the cornerstone is that against which everything else is tested. That's what a cornerstone does. That makes perfect sense. It is the stone that tests everything else. That's the idea. That was the function of a cornerstone. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom will bring you part four next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, why is Christ still a stumbling block for some people even today? It's because just like the Jews of Paul's day, it is impossible for us to save ourselves. And if we think that we can earn our salvation, then Jesus Christ becomes a stumbling block. Because Jesus made exclusive claims 
that he and he alone is the way to God, that it's his work that makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And the person who rejects that message, the message of salvation by faith alone, to that person, Christ is still a stumbling block, and that has eternal consequences. My prayer is, friend, that you won't stumble over Jesus Christ, but you'll humble yourself before God and put your faith entirely in him and his finished work in order to be reconciled to God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. We also invite you to visit the word unleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from the word unleashed. That's the word unleashed.org. You know, the Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. (music) Thank <music> you.